Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jean Fox. I'm here with a very special guest, a member of the Vanity Fair family, a an incredible reporter. Dave Cullen is here. He has been covering mass murders in America for two decades, which is a sentence that is almost sickening to say. He wrote, literally wrote the book on Columbine and then another fantastic gut-wrenching book called Parkland, A Birth of a Movement. Dave, thank you so much for coming today. Hey, thanks for having me, Emily. Yeah, it is kind of gross to uh, <laughs> us two decades on this. Luckily, I do some other stuff now too, but I keep getting drawn back into this. It just does not go away. Well, this is this is a thing about sort of owning an area, right? As a reporter, it's kind of like a dream to be the authority on something, right? And then for the rest of your days, you are someone who's so deeply steeped and well-sourced and understands the emotions of something and understands the politics of something like that is that is being top of your field in something and for you you are unfortunately called on as an expert in something so often in a way that is completely completely maddening yeah and uh, god you know you know how i find out about these things is usually from somebody calling me i you know i found out about parkland when anderson cooper's producer who they usually like to have me on, I guess she texted me um, and she just said something like, uh, it, it's happening again. Um, but actually the one that really sort of like was rough, I mean, they're all rough, but uh, uh, but I remember very clearly uh, Virginia Tech, because at that point after Columbine, you know, I, I was sure that, you know, things would really get out of hand because Columbine had escalated it so badly. And for many years, it didn't. There was nothing that sort of equaled Columbine. And after, so I guess about seven years, I guess there was this, I felt this complacency of like, okay, this isn't going to escalate. There was still more of these, but nothing horrific on that scale. And then I was in bed and I guess I had just turned on my cell phone. I hadn't gotten up yet. And I got a call from a colleague from Northern Ireland who worked for the BBC. And he asked me, you know, he said, you know, I'm obviously calling you to, you know, comment on the events in Virginia. And I was like, oh my God, what, what the hell happened in Virginia? Because I know like if you're calling from Ireland, 
this is going to be bad. And, this this uh, is not uh, three people at a movie theater, though. Obviously, that's all worthy of coverage, but but this is uh, that's a different scale. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, yeah, it's really bad. It's like thirty, and I, yeah, I just started crying, and I'm like, I couldn't even believe it. Ugh. And uh, you know, and then I got up and turned on the TV, which is what I do. Which, by the way, uh, I mean, that's that's what then I had to do. That's my job. Is then when I'm notified is turn on the TV um, because usually places want me to start calling right away. Sometimes they want me on the air. I used to live in Hell's Kitchen for 10 years and I could get 30 Rock. I could run over there in under 10 minutes. And sometimes they'd ask me to, uh, to be live on the air on NBC or MSNBC. And so that's the job is to, you know, get up to speed. Um, and this time actually with Uvalde was the first time I can ever remember. Uh, I just, I just couldn't do it. And I just, I wouldn't. And I was like, ugh. And they were calling me. I actually said yes to NBC. You know, I was going to be on the air in like 30 minutes. I'm like, oh, I got to find out what's going on. And I just, I just couldn't do it. I just, because it was like Sandy Hook again and it was just too horrible. And I was, and then I thought, um, like, well, why even turn it on? I can just mouth the words they're probably saying right now. You know, it's the same thing. Um, so why do I even need, need to know anything? Which is the other horror of this that, you know, we're just saying the same things a lot of the time. Although shockingly, there always does seem to be something different to say, but, um, but yeah, but the sameness in the refusal of our Congress to do anything just gets, I don't know, you know, back and forth, all the emotions of maddening anger. But, and that time I was, uh, that night I lost hope again and lost kind of, uh, the will to do anything until about, it was like nine or 10 o'clock that night. And I'd done about three different hits and I suddenly got really angry and energized again. Like, okay, I'm going to do something, which is when um, I decided that I was going to like turn to the smartest person I know in this, uh, Gabby Giffords. And I contacted her comms guy and asked if she and I could talk about this. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. Um, I want to talk to you about what Gabby had to say because I think it was so powerful. And I just thought she is such a clear voice in this. But I want to just back up and, and talk about your reaction to this because I can relate to it and I think that everybody had that feeling that day where it's sort of like, it's sickening to watch and it's sickening to watch what happened. And then it's sickening to watch knowing 
what's going to happen now. And I have to say, you and I have been talking about you coming on the podcast for weeks. And I, uh, this week, asked myself, do people still want to hear about this? And the fact that that is a question is so sad. And people are still talking about this and people are still thinking about this and feeling about this, but it is not the every minute conversation that it needs to have in order for something to change. So I, I, I just want to hear your thoughts on being in this sort of vice where we are living in a world that is unsafe for the most vulnerable people among us. And yet we do nothing about it. Well, it's, it is frustrating in a way, but I mean, one of the reasons I think I'm less frustrated than some people where it's just like throwing up our hands and this is craziness is I understand who the enemy is here and the adversary. And it is the other side, it's the gun lobby, not gun owners, but the gun lobby and partisans who have joined them doing this as a tactic. Because so many of the people who, for instance, voted in the House against the gun bill just this week and who are going to ensure that it can't be passed into law in the Senate, a lot of those people want many of these provisions to happen. They wish they could protect their children with these provisions and they are for them, but they have joined a side where the tactic is don't give an inch, don't give anything. And one of the reasons for that, there's a lot of different reasons. I mean, it basically, it's like the idea is like uh, Gabby's side and the gun safety side, people are saying, let's meet in the middle on common ground. There's a lot of things that most of America agrees on. Let's just meet on those. And the NRA and their allies have said, first of all, don't trust the other side. They don't want to meet in the middle. If we meet them in the middle, that's a tactic to then push us all the way to the other side. So that's one part of it. Um, and that's sort of the scare tactic. But the rest of it is much more cynical than that. It's not even fear of being pushed. It's a tactic of causing hopelessness and despair on the gun safety side. And if you never give an inch, if the gun safety side always loses, who the hell is going to vote for them? Or who is even going to come out and continue, um, you know, these marches like this weekend or do anything or be part of that movement, a failed movement that is hopeless. There's no reason to join it. And there's no reason to even if you're a person to even want to think about this. The people who want to sort of like, ugh, I don't want to talk about it anymore because it's hopeless. Well, that's them winning. That is their strategy. Their legislators won't even pass the sensible things they agree with because that would provide momentum. It would provide hope. And their tactic is to block out all sense of momentum, all hope, to never give anything. So if your side is caught in losing, just like a sports team, you know, if it's like a losing team, like they can't recruit anyone good, you know, they can't get a good coach, nobody wants to work, it becomes self-perpetuating. A failure is a self-perpetuating situation. And right now we have 50 years of failure, I mean, just devastating failure, not only losing, uh, but wiping out the previous 130 years of, of gun regulation. So if you're on the side losing that badly, th that destroys you. So that's the tactic. And so understanding that and knowing what they're up to and watching that up close 
you know, I'm not willing to give into that. I realize like they're hoping that we're all going to turn away. That's the plan. You know, it's almost like, you know, not, a, not that I'm calling terrorists or anything, but like the whole like the terrorists win if we blah, blah, blah. It's the same kind of thing. Totally. It's, you know, the NRA wins if we just throw up our hands and talk about something else. They have been winning for so long and that they have been effective in this strategy for so long. And I'm wondering, you've been covering this for two decades. Has anything changed since you've been covering it? Yes, dramatically. Talk to me about so, what's changed. So after Sandy Hook, this this movement really changed. And there's this whole idea that the gun safety movement died or gun control died the day of Sandy Hook because nothing changed. He was actually born that day. So a couple things happened. First of all, gun control that whole idea and that name um, and, well, and also the movement of people behind it began in the 1960s and the, the Gun Control Act of 1968. That's the first time we were calling it that. And unfortunately, that was a really weak law that didn't do the primary things it set out to do. And so it was this do little law, but then energized the other side. And the movement that followed it too energized the other side. And with perhaps the worst name in the history of political movements, gun control, think about that. If you're on the other side, who the hell wants to be controlled? Mm. Um, And, you know, these people thought they they were thinking in terms of controlling these devices, these weapons, guns. But, you know, if you're the half of Americans at that time who owned one of these things, well, it sounds like, you know, controlling you. And, And really... It is. You know, if they're going to control the stuff that you own and that you love is a big part of your life, well, they're controlling you too in the process. So that was But control is acceptable in lots of areas of our lives. We wear seatbelts, we follow speed limits, we we take off our shoes at the airport. You know, there's there's a, a cost and a price to living in society and there are rules and laws and Every, like we the food we can buy is regulated every part of our life in this country is in some way regulated or controlled and and just incomprehensibly in the most dangerous aspect is not able to be regulated. Sure. The first two ones you thought of were um, perfect. It's, I think you said seatbelts seat and um, speed limits. So in the 1960s, there were two big things that happened at the same time. There were two big causes of, you know, death in America that Americans were really upset about, gun violence and car crashes being a leading cause of death is highway accidents. And there were big movements on both of those fronts. The auto uh, group led by Ralph Nader first, they branded theirs as auto safety. And the gun people branded theirs as control. And the trajectories have been pretty much polar opposite. The auto safety has been wildly successful. It, you know, I mean, the things you mentioned, airbags, any lock brakes, all sorts of, you know, different devices within cars. It's now something that consumers demand and expect and want. It's universally beloved and accepted. And it was very controversial for the first few decades. And the manufacturers fought it. Now they're on board with it and they see it as a selling point. Um, Everyone loves the idea of safety and being safe in your cars. So that worked as a railing cry that everyone could get behind. The control thing, you may argue it's the same idea. It's the way we talk about it, the way we think about it. It did not rally the other side to want to participate. It rallied the other side to be terrified that you wanted to control their lives and control them. And it got their backs against the wall and they opposed 
And once sides have been taken, and 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 then by the way, um, the NRA was a, a very small and unpowerful group in the sixties and largely apolitical. It was it was because of this whole gun control movement that in the nineteen seventies they became a much well they tripled in size, but also became very political. In fact, overnight they changed, and I hate ever, you know, overusing words like, you know, or literal words, literally overnight. It happened a specific night in 1977. It's called the revolt in Cincinnati, where um, at their annual meeting, they managed a coup and threw out their entire leadership, voted them out and replaced them with a a, a radical Harlan Carter, who then eventually led to Wayne LaPierre, um, but completely changed overnight, became this you know, the radicals took over the organization and have had it ever since. So um, this all happened in response to um, the the gun control movement uh, and, and the act in 1968. So you have this 50 years of this horrible thing, most horrible way of, of talking about it, but also the way you think about it. So more than 10 years ago, the gun control people came to their senses and realized this is a toxic name. Um, there's actually, I just talked to Shannon Watts about a week ago who founded Moms Demand Action and then merged with Bloomberg's group to become every town for gun safety. She started Moms Demand Action as a Facebook group the day of Sandy Hook. And she initially named it Moms Demand Action, I believe, for gun control. I believe it was gun control was definitely in the title. And a couple weeks later, it was Carolyn Mahoney, the congresswoman, famous gun safety crusader, uh, who called her up and said, um, I love what you're doing. This mom's think this is fantastic because the group had already gone viral. Sure. And I love what you're doing, but you've got to change that name. Mm. That gun control is toxic. We're not using that anymore. It is just destroying us. And Shannon had already like legally created this entity, had to like go to the lawyers, see how can we change this, and did it because, you know, I asked her, did you take Carolyn's word for it? She's like, I talked to all these other activists and they all were on board like, oh yeah, yeah, we're not using that anymore. Wow. That's really, really terrible. That's a huge mistake. But that, that took that take 40 years. Um, so I'm still trying to date exactly when it happens because no one seems to exactly know. I think it was sort of a gradual process, but Shannon said, yeah, it, it happened before me because everybody's already on board. So it was pre-Sandy Hook. So the movement had already kind of figured that out. But on Sandy Hook that day, Two huge things happened. Um, there was essentially no opposition to the NRA and never had been. There had been all these small groups like Handgun Inc., which later became the Brady Campaign, and lots of little groups, but small, disorganized. There was no really – nothing ever effective. In terms of organizations and in terms of politicians, uh, the Democrats had left the field in 1994 and then – completely in 2000, because in 1994, uh, they passed the assault weapons ban, and they had also recently just passed the Brady Bill, both very problematic and weak in their own ways. And then uh, Bill Clinton, the Democrats got slaughtered in the midterms. And Bill Clinton, in probably an act of cowardice or possibly believing this, blamed it largely on the assault weapons ban passing, which there was mm. no there was no evidence of that. But, you know, he needed a scapegoat and found the the gun control people. And so then the Democrats were terrified of it and quit running on it, quit talking about it. After Columbine in the year 2000, Al Gore made another stab in his presidential run, ran on some gun legislation, 
lost. And again, it was blamed on his losses in Tennessee and West Virginia, which it's since been proven political scientists are quite clear. It had nothing to do with his his uh, gun control stances. But that was blamed. And then it was like, OK, that's the end of it. And pretty much Democrats, unless you were like, you know, maybe in San Francisco or an insanely safe seat, completely left the field. And for, you know, the next 20 years, really just completely gave it up to the to the Republicans and the NRA. So there were no major activist organizations and one political party had deserted the field. So the other side had it all themselves and did whatever they wanted, which is pretty much all these horrible things. So mm. after Sandy Hook, it didn't die. That was the rebirth day. So two things happened. First, Shannon began Moms Demand Action. And about two or three weeks later, Gabby Giffords and her husband, Mark Kelly, formed their first pack and also decided to do something, a, a, a gun control pack, um, which a goofy name that I can't even remember. Eventually, within a couple of years, both Shannon and Gabby's organizations had merged into other existing organizations to form much larger ones. At that point, then Gabby's was renamed Giffords Courage, and Mom's Demand Action is now a constituent part of the, the really crucial part of Every Child for Gun Safety. They also have now Students Demand Action. So those are the kind of the two huge organizations, uh, Giffords and Every Town. There was never anything like them. They both, together, they're more powerful than the NRA. They've actually been beating the NRA since uh, 2018. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Explain to me how and like what are what are they actually doing? Um, well, at the state level, at Congress, everything is deadlocked. The state level is where you can see what's happening below the scenes, where there are laws being fought out every year. Uh, there are between 60 to 100 bills that come up in the different state legislatures. And for about 50 straight years, consecutive years, the NRA had won, if you sort of tallied all up, up and won big. In 2017, uh, I had my researcher look into this, something like 80, I think it was 87% of the state laws, the NRA won on them. That flipped for the first time in about 50 years in 2018 after Parkland, where most of the gun safety side won. And they're battling against about things about like uh, open carry, you know, stand your ground. Most of those have been been settled. You know, these are the types of things they uh, battle around. There's one now of like permitless carry where the NRA is actually doing pretty well on that. But uh, there are red flag laws. Many of the states have 
raised the age what what raised the age of assault weapons uh, from 18 to 21. So there are all sorts of things that they're debating about in the state houses. So that is a really good way to kind of keep score and see what's going on. When you've got Congress where everything's deadlocked, you've got a, basically a Senate that requires 60 votes where nothing's going to happen. So that's sort of out of play. But you can see what's been going on sort of below the scenes there. You can also see politicians running on it and voting on it and the other side essentially taking the field. Because in um, Giffords, there, her main – her huge idea was that A, people are never going to vote on this unless you give them something to vote for. Like why, why would you waste your vote on guns when you're somebody – especially a young person who's – really interested in this, but you've got climate change, you've got the economy, you've got wars overseas, all these other reasons to vote on. Why would you vote on guns when the legislators never pass anything on guns and never, essentially never even try? So there's a, there's a catch 22 there where you have to get people to run on it in order to get people to vote for it. Um, and of course, nobody wants to run on it when they're afraid nobody's going to vote for you and the other side will vote against you. So they had to prove that people would actually vote on guns if you gave them a reason. So they had tried proving grounds in in very traditional gun country states. First in Virginia in the governor's race uh, with Terry McAuliffe, it was about 10 years ago now. And then two years later in New Hampshire, the live free or die state, very much gun country up there. And uh, in the Senate race, and they actually unseated Kelly Ayotte, uh, the incumbent, by Maggie Hassan running very aggressively on guns. And the political class, the first one, they were pretty shocked, like, you can run on guns in Virginia and win. Um, So they were shocked, but like, maybe it was, you know, is that a fluke? After two, you know, the two big targeted races, not just like a whole bunch, you know, and they won two out of 100. The two they targeted, they won both of them. That really uh, turned heads in the political class. So you... I, most people hadn't heard about this. If you were a politician, you were very aware of this. So the idea was in 2018, then go big and encourage dozens, maybe a hundred or more uh, candidates for Congress to run on gun safety. Well, just that was going very well early in 2018. Then Parkland happened on Valentine's Day, really changed the equation. And hundreds of people, most of the Democrats running for Congress ran on it. Many Republicans did in some swing districts, like districts like in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is a huge thing that everybody watches. Both candidates ran on gun safety, trying to outflank each other. There weren't a ton of races, but there were quite a few where both sides were running on it. Nothing like that had happened since probably since the 60s. So you finally have a political list. Now, one side is is voting on this. If, if you want to know one key indicator of how the political winds have changed, after the 2018 midterms, the next day, the new returning Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, one of the very first statements she made is that like our first priority on day one is we're going to pass a gun safety bill. Now, love Nancy Pelosi or hate her, she's well known as being perhaps the smartest person in Washington right now of reading the political winds. And she realized that everything had flipped. After 20 years of her side avoiding all votes in the House because those votes would be used against them. And so they, you know, they didn't want to be on record that way. And the Republicans were trying to always get these votes on silly bills that would never go anywhere just so that they could use them in the election. That had flipped. Now Nancy realized, 
I want my people on record because in 2020 and future elections, I, we will use that as a, as a plus. And I want the Republicans on record voting against them, these because now it'll be a minus. Both sides recognize now, if you talk about it the right way, this is a plus, voters will vote for it. That has completely changed. That's why the House is now voting for this. So you have one party finally for this. Now, the Senate is a huge thing. Now, how to get past this filibuster is a problem. The Democrats will probably lose some seats. So this isn't going to happen anytime soon. But you finally got like two parties battling over this. And like, there's there's a possibility to win. They can have a majority. They can, It's possible. And it's likely at some point, if you're looking at a five or 10 year horizon, whereas before when only one party was voting for it, the other party was running away. Well, it was 100% sure of losing. So that has changed. What's happening at the state level shows that you can you can make things happen. And there's a lot of things that that the gun safety people are winning on uh, at the local level. So the I look at this the way you know the the civil rights movement or the gay rights movement, which I was a big part of and fighting for. And I remember at the time. You know, we had all these state initiatives, and we lost every single one. I can't remember on marriage equality. Uh, we lost every single one. Um, and I remember some friends saying, like, you know, this is hopeless. We always lose. And I was like, are you watching the percentages? We're getting mm. so much closer in so many states. And like, they're, they're like, so what? But we lose all of them. Like, we are winning over the public. Our side, like, it's not going to, you know, look like a victory. Like, that will be the last thing. And when the Supreme Court does this or some, we have some overwhelming thing, that will be the last stage. When it all came together, it came so fast, lightning fast. But honestly, it didn't happen lightning fast. It took yeah. the 20 years leading up to it. And I think with the civil rights thing, until they passed that bill in 1964, a lot of people were losing hope. There was a lot of hopelessness that we've been fighting this for you know decades, nothing's happening. Often when you're in a movement, it feels hopeless until that that moment where you get there and everything changes. I, you know, we have passed the pivot point where we're leading toward victory. Now, with the system we have, where we've still got a filibuster and and the Democrats are about to probably get pummeled for a lot of different reasons, um, it's not around the corner, but. Five, 10, 20 years, it's looking much more more likely. And now there there is a powerful team on the field, larger than the NRA. The NRA has 5 million people. Uh, Moms Demand Action now has 8 million people. We've never had anything bigger than the NRA before. There's nothing been comparable uh, to the NRA. Uh, the gun safety side is now raising more money than the NRA. There are all sorts of ways that you can sort of track this that also had never happened. Uh, they're winning more races. Uh, you know, all these things were unthinkable. And by the way, the other crucial thing that happened in 2018 is that um, the NRA was winning so much, so largely on intimidation. They could win, and every it was considered political suicide to go up against them. Very few people did in, 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 you know, in, in any race that you might lose. And so the NRA didn't have to expend its resources very much. They could just target the money on the handful of races where either a Republican defied them or you know, some Democrat in the swing district decided to go up against them. So they could spend their money in very small places 
and then of course win because then they had overpowering advantage, which was self-perpetuating. Okay, they will destroy you. In 2018, when they lost more than half of their races, that whole toxic thing and they'll destroy you if you go up again, if you defy them, was was completely obliterated. The NRA may still help you in a race, but the idea that like they're indefeatable, well, that dies when you're defeated. So they're weaker. They're pretty hobbled now. They're in bankruptcy court. You know, they're definitely not defeated, but the, the game has changed. It's, it's actually so heartening to hear you talk about it in these terms. And this is why I'm so happy you're here today, because while I think it's absolutely pathetic that it would take... 5, 10, 15, 20 years to make change on keeping your children safe at school and literally makes my my every hair on my body stand up. It does feel like there is progress. There is movement. There's measurable stuff. It is not happening nearly at the speed that it needs to happen. But but hearing you talk about it and lay it out like that and, and compare it to other historical movements like that, it does actually make me feel like, okay, we're not completely hopeless here. It's still pathetic, but there is movement happening. And I just want to know, you are so steeped in the history of this. And you, I know, have spent so much time talking to kids who have experienced this, families who have experienced this. And just from the human side of this, what are the people who have lived through these things feeling, dealing with, doing as we watch this continue to play out across the country? So it's pretty rough on the people who've gone through this. And, you know, every time there's another one of these, um, you know, they're just, God, they're... They go through it again. They go through a version of it. It's pretty rough. Uh, the people who have sort of gotten on board the safety movement, they find great solace in that. Um, you know, the Parkland kids has been extremely healing. Although, I mean, I, I, I guess I'll say some of the kids, we were afraid of this. I've talked to the Parkland kids, the Marsh Bar Lives kids. They kind of delayed their their healing and their uh, some of their trauma issues by hurling themselves into this for that first year in particular. And some of them discovered they had delayed it. And then there were some repercussions later. You know, I, I don't think worse, but, you know, they just had to live with them. But luckily, it's been four years. So, you know, I think most of them, well, I don't want to generalize, but most of them are doing well. Um, and by, by doing something positive, it's it really is effective. In fact, uh, when I talked to some psychologists um, who specialize in, in juvenile psychology and juvenile trauma uh, and PTSD uh, in the wake of Parkland and was wondering, you know, is it safe for these kids? Uh, in, in particular, this one, I, I quote her in my book in Parkland. I her name. She's out of uh, Michigan State. She said, you know, it's really interesting. What they're doing is real, sim- real similar to um, what we try to do in therapy. And particularly with with rape victims or people who have been traumatized in a very personal way, the therapy is to the, the primary idea is to give you the sense you have power over yourself and your destiny because that's what terrible things like that do uh, psychologically. Uh, the big impact is you feel powerless, you feel helpless. You know, somebody could attack you, do horrible things to you. And so sort of to regain that. And in therapy, they try role plays and things that 
it can be effective, but the psychologist was telling me, um, I guess she's a psychiatrist, that a lot of people find them kind of like corny. And so, you know, it's a little hard to buy into the, you know, feel real with the role play. And she said, you know, like these Parkley kids, they're actually doing it for real. Like there's not any sense of like, you know, play acting here. They're really doing it. They are reclaiming their power by taking some power back. This is the, you know, the exact, uh, you know, we couldn't make up, um, a therapy better than this. So in that sense, she said, like, what they're doing is really effective for them. Now, you know, there's also some delay because then they sort of like held off some of the pain of it. But it is, whether you do it in the first months after or you, you need some time to get your stuff together and like a year later or 10 years later, you join these movements, this is it is it's the basis of what you know therapists would want you to do. So it's a really, really powerful, effective, or it can be very powerfully effective thing for these people. So you know, not that you would necessarily do it for your therapy. Well, just do it for whatever you need to if you if you you get trauma issues. But um, that can have be a huge secondary benefit. Mm-hmm. I wanted to throw out one other idea too, of like the hope of what's happening Please. that is just completely overlooked. And the Giffords agenda. Well, first of all. Uh, why not a little bit? Um, one of the other big things, be- the other reasons for uh, not talking about this as gun control and sort of rebranding it as gun safety is I think it really changes the way you think about it. And I know it has for me about solutions because I, I know when I was kind of shocked just a couple of years ago, I discovered this change and realized that I thought of gun control in pretty narrow terms of like controlling that device. And it, it sort of like narrowed my thinking to what you can do with a gun and how you can control it. And once I started thinking about safety and the way the Giffords people do and Shannon Watts about uh, the different elements of, of gun violence, the biggest factors, and, and how to then take each element and deal with each one individually. And the biggest elements are uh, – do you know what the, the leading cause of gun death is? What? Suicide. Mm. And it's not just the biggest one, it's, it's over half. It's two-thirds of all gun deaths are suicides. Mm. And when was the last time you hear any sort of like ideas about combating suicide? I, don't, I honestly don't think I've ever heard that. It's two-thirds of the problem. I, so I, this is part of the problem. If you're ignoring two-thirds of the problem, well, that's a pretty stupid you know, movement, right? But the people in the gun safety movement are. So the the biggest list are suicides. Next comes inner city gang related. Uh, 90% of the the gun deaths are uh, of the person on person of of the murders are inner city gang people of color. We've got mass shootings. We've got accidents. And then you sort of got crime and everything else. Well, if you take that list, each one of those items in trying to do something targeted to that item – it's very clear there are a lot of good things you can do. With suicides, the main thing you have to do is delay them, gun su- access to a gun, for a lot of different reasons, and I won't get too deep. But like a, the key things, most people who use a gun to commit suicide succeed. The success rate is over 90%. Sure. The success rate of everything else is shockingly low. Some of the things is below 10%, but almost everything is below 50%, way below. Mm. Most suicides fail. Most non-gun suicides fail. Most gun suicides succeed. Wow. So, and, and it's also uh, an impetuous act. Most people who attempted to do it uh, attempted very quickly 
And if you can delay them, you stop it. And then, you know, the next idea is like, well, then won't they just, you know, try it next week or something? No. The other, uh, we have great data on all these things. Most people who attempt a suicide and fail do not try again. Something like 90% do not. So all this, you know, comes together. If you can just delay access to a gun, you will stop most gun suicides. You can save countless lives there. On the inner city, we've got something called violence interrupter programs. Uh, with mass shootings, of course, you'd want to target the uh, the assault weapons and or the um, the ammunition, the large scale rounds. Accidents, uh, well, both mass shootings and accidents, uh, you want to do things that uh, limit access to guns. Most mass shootings are performed by somebody who uh, got the gun from a friend or relative. Uh, where it wasn't locked up. So there are laws, one of the uh, features in the law the House just passed, um, which states are also uh, adopting, is clamping down on how you uh, control the guns, you know, whether you lock them up. You know, that's a big movement of making that a bigger issue, which people on the gun side, gun owner side, have always embraced that and said, we need to be responsible with these things. So it's another thing where you can sort of come together. Uh, but of all those, the one, the, the, the number one priority uh, for the Giffords people the last several years has been this inner city uh, problem and this thing called violence interrupters, where I won't get into the weeds, but essentially it's the idea of like, there's mostly gang on gang and uh, it's, you know, one killing then perpetuates, there's escalation and, and all these deaths happen. And the key insight is the gangs don't want to do this. They feel they have to escalate or they'll lose face, they'll lose power, but they don't want to. And so if you can find a way to de-escalate after one of these happens, you can change the game. So pilot programs in a whole different many states have been running for like the last 10 years and have been proved, been wildly successful in cities across the country by just having teams of intervention people right there in the ER in the south side of Chicago, in the, you know, in all the, all the places where this is happening, you can drastically reduce them. Um, these have been wildly successful. What they've lacked is funding. And uh, so this is sort of like this massive thing under the radar that hardly anybody has, has talked about. Uh, I, I talked about it a bit in the profile I did on Gabby Giffords for Vanity Fair a couple of years ago, if you read that. Funding in, in the Build Back Better plan, they, they got, got something like – several billion dollars into that plan, which they thought that had they gotten that through. They thought that was that passed the House earlier this year. They thought it was going to get through the Senate, but then it failed. But then in a later bill, and I believe in April, they passed, I believe it's a billion dollars in funding over several years, 200 million just this year. That's the wow. first time this massive infusion of federal cash. And some, several of the states have been, have been passing it as well. So that has finally, it's a huge win under the radar. The most important thing that will be saving lives. Most people don't even know it exists. You know, I asked the givers people earlier this year, like, how did you finally get that through? Like, how, how did the NRA stop fighting this? Because first of all, I'd never understood why the NRA was fighting it. Like, why do this care? This doesn't infringe. Uh, and they were mainly fighting it because the gun safety people were for it. Well, they finally did stop fighting it. And of course, we don't know. They, they don't tell, you know, they don't tell us that. They don't announce it. But, you know, I talked to the Giffords people, Peter Ambler, uh, their executive director, and he's like, I think they're picking their, picking their battles. They're kind of wounded mm -hmm. and they never had any good reason to oppose it. And so they decided like, okay, we'll just let that one go. 
Um, it, you know, it really doesn't matter to us. So, uh, you know, that's where you also see an impact of a weekend NRA. But to my mind, you know, like that gave me huge joy. Um, huge numbers of people of color in inner cities will be saved over the next several years because this has happened. Most of America has no idea, but hey, they're going to know. The people who are on the ground, the peace warriors in Chicago, the people that I have been working with, makes a huge difference to them and their lives. It's, you know, their friends and their family are most likely going to be more likely to live because of this. This is so interesting and fascinating to hear. And, and really, uh, I don't get to hear about the nuts and bolts of things that are happening on the ground. And, and I have felt so dejected over the last few weeks and disgusted by what's going on. And this, for the first time, has made me feel like ever so slightly less so. Yeah. And I'm I'm just so grateful for you doing what you're doing and stopping by here to, to talk about everything that you know. I hope to have you back on here proactively rather than reactively. Uh, we can talk about progress that's being made, not in the wake of something so devastating. And we can just continue to beat the drumbeat of what is happening. And so people can get more involved, can feel like, okay, here's what's happening. Here's where I can be helpful. Here's where I can donate. Here's where I can shine light. And so I just am so grateful for you doing what you're doing and for stopping by here. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. That's great. And, you know, just to, to be clear for the record, too, is like, I don't want to be a Pollyanna, like, oh, everything's great. And like, uh, they're winning is like, it's still shitty. <laughs> it's still it's still rough. And it's still, you know, ultimate success a long way off. But the game has changed and they're chipping away. And now there is a path to victory. And there have been, you know, small victories along the way. So like, that's where I'm at. And like, still pissed off and frustrated about the bigger picture, but hopeful like things are changing. There is a path and not losing hope. So that's where I am, you know, keeping to that path. Okay. Well, we're right there with you. I, I really appreciate it. And we'll, we'll speak to you soon. All right. Thanks, Emily. Thank you to our guest, Dave Cullen, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a nice review while you're there. Our production and editing work is done by Brett Fuchs. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors. Please support them any way you support this podcast. We will see you right here next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs>